You can open up with me to John chapter 13. Uh, we're continuing our, our study uh, there. Uh, as uh, you're turning there, I remember back this uh, summer making final uh, preparations uh, for my family and I to go on a, uh, a road trip. Uh, and just all of the, the, the work that goes uh, into that. Uh, packing uh, bags, and, and our kids are at that stage where they don't pack their own bags. I'm looking forward to that day. Right? Like, just go pack for the road trip. Uh, but we, we, we pack everything. Uh, we get uh, all of the, the snacks ready for the trip, which is very, very important. Uh, and, uh, and then just as important when you have young children, like all of the toy or car activities. Uh, I know years gone by, we've, we've like worked diligently to get everything ready. And then our kids like blow through every activity that we had in like a matter of like 10 minutes. Like, okay, that was everything. And uh, what do we do for the next 10 hours? Um, and uh, I remember uh, this past summer, I had like everything in the car. We were like trying to like get the, okay, what shoes are you wearing in the car? Like, okay, get your shoes on. We're going to go. And uh, I had seen my, my young daughter walking around inside the house. I'm going back and forth. And she had my wife's sunglasses uh, in, in her hand. And some of you are like, oh, I know where this is going. And she, had, she played with the sunglasses before. But, of course, it would be that day uh, that uh, my daughter decided to do this. Uh, with uh, the sunglasses so we're like sprinting to get out the door running late uh, and uh, then uh, my daughter broke my wife's uh, sunglasses and I'm kind of just like suck it up you gotta we gotta go like we're but we're going to like we're gonna go swim in the pool we're gonna be outdoors this whole vacation like how can you say like we just got to get other sunglasses like okay so we stopped and got sunglasses uh, and uh, all of those things but uh Many of us know uh, that feeling of the, the, the frenzy and the, the stress of the, the final preparations before uh, a long uh, road trip. Uh, and, and many of us spend a lot of time uh, making preparations for vacations uh, or for hunting trips. Yes, men, I know what, what time of year it is uh, and uh, where some of you have been. Uh, and uh, may the Lord have provide for you uh, as you go. Uh, but uh, we know all about making preparations for those kinds of uh, trips. But what about, what about making final preparations for departing from this life? Right? Uh, that is a far bigger uh, deal. That is of far greater significance. And if you knew uh, that you would be departing soon, what type of preparations would you be making? Who uh, would you want to to speak with, right? Because when you're, when you're making your final preparations uh, to depart from this life and go to the next, you're not worried about packing. You're not going to take anything with you. But you are going to be very uh, attuned to uh, who do I need to speak with and what do I need to say to them? Uh, and as we come to our, and continue our study in, in John 13, we've come to the, the final night of Jesus' life. We've come to the Last Supper, uh, and Jesus is making his final preparations for his death and his departure. He is getting ready to leave the disciples behind, uh, and he's going to be informing them of that right here and right now uh, on this final evening with them. And Judas, as we saw last week, uh, Judas has, has just left. Jesus uh, identified him to the Apostle John as the one who was going to betray him. And he, he dips the bread and he hands it to Judas and says, What you do, do quickly. 
And Jesus went, or Judas went out, and it says, and then it was night. And immediately the next verse, with, with Judas gone, the, the one among the twelve who was not actually a believer, the one who was going to betray uh, Jesus to the, uh, the Jewish leaders, with him gone, Jesus is now able to say, okay, now we can handle business. Now I can tell you what's really on my heart and what is most important. What we're entering into as we come to to verse 31 of John 13 is what is known as the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. Begins here in chapter 13, verse 31, and it's going to continue, uh, some would say, through the end of chapter uh, 16. Uh, And then we have the high priestly prayer uh, in chapter 17. And some people attach the high priestly prayer to uh, this upper room discourse. But I think it's a good transition. It's a a part of things. And it's very significant because basically in the high priestly prayer, Jesus is going to pray through everything that he just instructed the disciples about. But Jesus is going to, uh, to take this time... To address to the disciples what is most significant. What do they need to know before he departs? This morning what I I want to study is verses 31 to 35. If you look there with me. Therefore, when he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truthfulness and the weightiness of these words that we get to study this morning. Father, we pray that you uh, would open our eyes and our minds uh, to see and to behold, to understand all that you are teaching and instructing us in these verses. Father, may you also give us faith to believe everything that is taught here. Help us to embrace it. Help us to have the inner conviction that these things are true. That they are to be believed and that they are to be obeyed. Then may you give us wisdom uh, in uh, applying these principles to uh, our everyday lives. Help us to be transformed by the study and proclamation of your word now. We ask in Jesus' name. So now that Jesus is alone with his true disciples, he's going to instruct them and he's going to prepare them for his death, for his resurrection, for his ascension, and ultimately for his future return as well. He's going to instruct them about what they can expect uh, in the the in-between from the the moment he departs uh, to the moment he returns. 
And uh, we as 21st century believers, uh, as we study this passage, we are on the other side of, uh, of the cross. Uh, that, that as the disciples were hearing this, uh, they're looking forward, not fully understanding what's going to take place in just a matter of hours. Uh, but you and I uh, are reading this uh, and we are looking back uh, with greater understanding of what is to take place uh, just be ahead of the disciples here. Uh, and uh, yet in this passage, uh, we are still going to see what was most important to Jesus. What were the, the most important things, mo- the most pressing things that he wanted his disciples to understand? Uh, and if it was most important uh, to them then, it's going to be very, very important uh, to us now as well. And, and to help uh, those 11 disciples to be prepared for his departure, uh, Jesus uh, is going to tell them about three upcoming surprises. Said, hey, guess what? Uh, these three things are going to take place. Uh, and the first of these surprises is, is seen in verses 31 and 32. And you can say that the first surprise is that Christ's death would be his glory. Jesus, uh, once Judas is gone, he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. The, the idea here, uh, Jesus uh, has often referred to himself uh, with uh, uh, this term, uh, the Son of Man. And we just uh, sang the song, the Ancient of Days. Both of those terms come out of uh, the Old Testament, Daniel uh, chapter 7. Uh, and uh, in that chapter, uh, Daniel has a dream. Uh, it says, I kept looking until thrones uh, were set up uh, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. And a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were open. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which were the horn which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Uh, And uh, all glory and power is given to that son of man. We have the ancient of days, God the Father, and the son of man, uh, the second member of the Trinity, the the pre-incarnate Christ coming in. Uh, He is going to be receiving glory and honor and praise. So it's it's not a shock for Jesus to say the son of man is going to be glorified. Like that's the direct context of that title. But what's amazing is that when Jesus uses that term repeatedly in the Gospels, he often doesn't times connect it with that type of glory. He connects it instead with his suffering. He connects it with his betrayal, with his death. I would encourage you to look up uh, just those occasions where the, the term the Son of Man appears in the Gospels. But just listen to these in Matthew 17. Verses 22 and 23, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not 
uh, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 9, 44, Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears for the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So Jesus is pointing, using this term uh, and a term of glory, but he's connecting it with his suffering. And in his gospel, the apostle John repeatedly connects the suffering and death of Jesus with his glory. The crucifixion of Jesus is really the glorification of Jesus. One Bible scholar notes that that the overall uh, story of uh, John's gospel has a unique form. It's like the form of a of a pendulum. Right? What does a pendulum do? If you, if you were to pull it back uh, up to this side, it's high here, it goes low, uh, and then it goes uh, and ascends once more. Uh, during the equipping hour, we talked about uh, a portion of the Old Testament known as the, the former prophets. And uh, that story arc in the former prophets is the exact opposite. It's the rise and fall of Israel. You see uh, Israel going in Joshua's time to uh, David's time to a monarchy. And then once uh, David's uh, king, uh, kingship is uh, over, it's just a steady decline over uh, a period uh, of another 400 years. Uh, and so here in John's gospel, it's, it's a unique uh, story arc. Uh, the gospel begins on a high note, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1, 14, uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's, that's the first high point in John's gospel. And then the low point is really what we studied uh, in John chapter 12, and then even what, what we studied last week. Because what we saw in John chapter 12 and the first part of John 13 was, uh, was darkness ruling and reigning. Jesus came and presented himself to uh, the people of Israel, uh, and they, they wanted a particular kind of Messiah. They, they wanted a particular kind of Savior. They wanted freedom from Rome uh, and political deliverance, but they didn't want what Jesus came as, a, a humble king sitting on a donkey. They didn't want that. But now, as uh, we've come past that low point in John's gospel, from this point on, as Jesus is moving to the cross, it's only an upward movement. It's only uh, working towards glory. Jesus is not only moving toward his death, he's moving uh, to uh, the cross and to his glorification. And so in John's gospel, the cross is not a tragedy. We're working towards it, John 19, uh, verses 19 and 20, and and in that, those verses, Jesus is on the cross. He's there nailed to the cross. And what's nailed above him? A sign. And it says, King of the Jews. And it says, King of the Jews. He's proclaimed as King of the Jews in all of the major languages of the Roman Empire, of that region. That's, that's the glory. That, that is his coronation when he's there on the cross. The cross is where he will be glorified. And verses 31 and 32 show how the the Trinitarian relationship of God the Father and God the Son means that they will both receive glory. Jesus is saying it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, a messianic title, by going to the cross. And he uh, then connects it and says, uh, and God is glorified in him. So as Jesus goes to the cross, he's going to be glorified. God the Father is going to be glorified. Then verse 32 kind of uh, reciprocates that. That God the Father is going to glorify the Son, even as the Son glorifies the Father. And He's going to to do that uh, immediately. 
This is all forthcoming right here and right now within the next 24 hours. But you might ask, how, how is it that God the Father and God the Son are glorified in the, in the crucifixion? Wasn't that a horrible, terrible event? Now, wasn't that utterly tragic? How do, we, how do we celebrate that? Well, one pastor gives uh, five reasons, five ways that Christ's death gives glory to the Father and to the Son. It says, first, Christ's death displayed God's power. Because as Jesus uh, dies on the cross, he doesn't stay dead. Now, he's going to be raised from the dead, showing forth God's power. Secondly, Christ's death declares God's justice. Proclaims that the penalty for sin is death. God desires uh, that his wrath be satisfied. That the penalty for sin must be paid, and it was paid in full when Jesus died on the cross. Christ's death also reveals God's holiness. Right? It shows the significance of the, the crimes that we've committed against God when, when uh, what needs to take place for us to be forgiven is the death of his son, the death of an innocent, the death of the one who was perfect in every way. Christ's death also expresses God's faithfulness. Going back to, to Genesis, God had promised a redeemer. He promised somebody who would set free uh, the world from the curse. And God delivered on that promise. Christ's death, ultimately what we see here, Christ's death is the supreme demonstration of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is that ultimate demonstration of love. And Christ is going to be glorified in his death, but not only in his death, also in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in the sending of his Holy Spirit. And all of those things are going to be discussed in this farewell discourse. Jesus is going to instruct his disciples in all of those things. But ultimately, this, this first surprise that Christ's death will be his glory, it is maybe perhaps familiar to you. But I think it was uh, unsettling and shocking to the disciples who are hearing it now. They believed that the Messiah would be glorified, but they didn't expect him to die first. Uh, they w- were not expecting him to die, let alone the, the most uh, lowly and the worst form of death, death on the cross, the most humiliating death. We'll talk about this later, but the cross was intended to be an utter shame, complete and utterly. And yet this death is the path of the Messiah's glory. Also, what we're going to see as we, as we march through this farewell discourse is that the disciples of Jesus will experience what Jesus experienced. That, that's, that's the common thread. We've already seen a little bit of that. He eased the model for us as we move forward following after him. We've already seen as he washed the disciples' feet, what did he then say? What are we to do? We are to serve one another as he has served here what we're going to see in this passage we are to love as he loved we are to suffer as he suffered we are to do the will of the father just as he did the will of the father he also is going to say in the same way that the world hated him the world is going to hate us 
if the world hated the one that we're following, the world hated our teacher, our master, our Lord and Savior, what can we expect? Nothing less but that same hatred. Remember, as we've been reading through 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul's words in in chapter 4. Paul said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surprising, surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. All of those themes are here taught by Jesus to the eleven. Paul wasn't there, but he's going to understand the same truths. So here's something to think about and to, to really question, do I believe this? If, if Christ's path to glory involved that humbling before the exaltation, do you see that as your same path to glory? Are you willing to, to humble yourself uh, in that same way and follow after Christ? Uh, do you see and believe that truly and wholeheartedly? Are you willing to do that? That's what we see here. This is uh, the first surprise, that Christ's death would be his glory, and that same path is going to be our path to glory. Humbling ourselves, and then we will be exalted later. There's a second surprise here, and it's not the bird trying to get into the upstairs over there. Second surprise in in verse uh, 33, that Christ's departure would be soon. It says, little children, I am with you, a little while longer, and you will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus here addresses the disciples kind of similar to a way a, a dying father might address his children. He uses this term of endearment and direct address uh, children. It's not used in this way very often. Uh, where it, and a speaker uh, addresses those who he's speaking to with this term of, of children. The Apostle Paul only uses it once in all of his writings. Uh, but what's interesting is that the Apostle John uses it seven times in First John. So I think if, if we were just kind of piecing this together, I think the Apostle John was deeply impacted by this night, such that he begins to speak as Jesus spoke. He begins to to use the same term of endearment that Jesus used towards him. And think about what Jesus says here. He he is, he's informing the disciples that he's going to be with them for a little bit, but then he's going to go and they're not going to be able to follow. That's significant. Now, these men have been following after him, going wherever he went for the last three years. And you can imagine what that would do if suddenly Jesus said that, uh, that he's going and they can't go come after him. How would you respond if you're at a big barbecue or a big party and one of your closest friends in life says, I am leaving and you can't follow after me? What question would immediately come to mind? Where, where are you going, right? And what does is, what is, uh, your favorite disciple ask in verse 36? What does Simon Peter say? Lord, Lord, where are you going, right? And... Then, but you can also see, see the, the tension and the emotion in the room. Look at what Jesus says to the disciples in chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. 
right? This man that they've been, they've been following, they are convinced is the Messiah. Now he's saying that he's going to leave. What did they do? That immediately created some tension, some emotion in their hearts, some a great uncertainty. But we should also note, and what's uh, drawn forth for us here, Jesus points out that he has said this before, but he has said it to to the Jews. And he's made these similar statements if you turn back uh, to John chapter 7, verses 33 and 34. Speaking with uh, the Pharisees. As, as the Pharisees had sent officers to seize him, in verse 32, Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. And you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. If you turn the page over to John chapter 8, verse 21, he's going to say something similar, but he's going to add a very significant portion to it. Then he said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. And where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is saying that you're going to find me, but they're not seeking him to believe in him. They're seeking him to to kill him, to destroy him. He says, ultimately, he's going to depart. Uh, they're going to seek, and, and they're never going to be able to, to find him. And what's going to be the end result? Because they never look to him in faith. He says that they will die in their sin. And yet, when, when Jesus says something similar to the disciples here, that would probably be a little bit unnerving. But then he's going to reassure them uh, in chapter 14. And if you, if you look in chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus assures them that, that even though he's going to depart, it won't, will not be a forever departure. That they will be reunited with Christ. They, they are not going to die in their sin, never to see Jesus again. Chapter 14, verse 3 says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then verse 19 after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. Jesus uh, says something similar to what he has said uh, to the Jewish leaders in the past, but then he gives a, an assurance to his disciples, an assurance that they will be with him. And the disciples needed that comfort. Right? He, he's just dropped a, a bomb on them. I'm leaving, guys, and you can't immediately come after me. They needed this comfort that one day they would be with him and live with him for all eternity. And Jesus' own words here to them bring comfort to our souls. So we never got to, to, to walk and, and live with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Uh, but we have been able to walk with him uh, as we have known him through his word and trusted uh, by faith. Uh, even though we have never seen him. We have walked with him, and one day we will be with him. We will get to see uh, all of those who have gone before us, all of the, the mansions that Jesus has prepared for others. We will get to see our own, and we will be with him forever. We will be raised with him to eternal life, and we will enjoy eternity with him. That's what he is assuring the disciples, and he is comforting them, even as he gives them this surprise that his departure would be soon. So that first surprise informed the disciples that uh, his death would be his glory. And the second surprise was that his departure uh, would be soon.
Then there's a, a third surprise. Verses 34 to 35. Christ's commandment would be new. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now you may ask, like, well, how is that a surprise? How is that even a new commandment? Like that, that commandment to love uh, my neighbor as myself, that was uh, written re- a way long time ago, and it's recorded in, in Leviticus. I would say that the newness of this command is not uh, in its substance, it's in its pattern. Uh, and, and we'll see that, as I would say, let's break down this third surprise into, into three smaller components. Look at the first part of verse 34. We, we see the command to love, right? Speaks very plainly here. Gives a simple command to the 11 disciples. He says, you are to love one another. And D.A. Carson says, this new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate and profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Right? You, you, you can uh, tell your young child and just ask the question, and I often do, are you loving your brother? Are you loving your sister? And they're able to assess. They don't know the full scope. That you couldn't say, like, define that and explain what, all of the applications of that. But they know when they're not doing it. Such a simple command. But how do we, how do we nail this down a little bit more? How do we, how do we pin the, the tail on this discussion uh, so that we know exactly uh, what is being said here? What does it really mean to love one another? There's a variety of words in the Greek for, for love. The one that's used here is agape, to, to have a warm regard for and an interest in another person. And while love does contain an emotion, uh, it is certainly a lot more than an emotion. I love what Jerry Bridges uh, says. He says, biblical love is not emotions or feelings, but attitudes and actions that seek the best interests of the other person, regardless of how we feel toward him. And I'll read that again. Biblical love is not emotions or feelings, but attitudes and, and actions that seek the best interest of the other person regardless of how we feel towards him. Oftentimes, we don't feel like loving somebody else. And if, we, if the emotion isn't there, what do we tend to do? We don't act. As we've been reading through uh, 1 Corinthians uh, this month, uh, it's been, we've had great discussions in our, in our growth group, and there's been uh, multiple of the, the, the men there who've really been impacted and deeply humbled by chapter 13. You're probably familiar with that uh, description of love given there. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things love never fails now if you want a a really simple test of your christian maturity and your obedience to this command just reread that passage and replace 
the word love with your name. Right? Thomas is patient. Thomas is kind. If you can, if you can make it through that passage without being profoundly humbled at your own ability to, to love uh, as God has commanded to love, let me know. And then I'll just go talk to one of your family members and we can, we can make sure that you are humbled uh, in that. There was a, a seminary class uh, assignment. <laughs> one time I, I, I had to take that passage and my wife got to grade me on each one of those on a scale of 1 to 10. That, that was humbling. And what's amazing about that passage in First Corinthians, like if you were to take that passage, we all struggle with that description of love. We all struggle that way in, in our own homes, right? We don't meet that standard. But the reality, when Paul gives that description, he's talking about love in the church. He's not saying just love your immediate family members that way. He's saying this is how y'all ought to love one another. This, and, and in that, Paul is just really building upon what Jesus is commanding here. Again, Jesus calls it new, not because it's new in substance, but rather it's new in its pattern. And, and this, is, this is the second component of, of the command uh, here, the, the pattern of love. And it, it's the second portion of verse 34. He said that you love one another, even as I have loved you and that you also love one another. What's interesting is when, when that command was given back in, in Leviticus, the second greatest commandment, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there was no pattern attached to it. Right? You could look at the surrounding verses and kind of get an understanding of, by way of contrast of what, what it looked like to love your neighbor. Uh, the, the two-verse kind of paragraph there in Leviticus says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur uh, sin because of him. And you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And, and sometimes we think along these lines. We kind of like take that passage of scripture and we kind of say, well, I'm, I'm obeying this command simply because I'm not doing the other prohibitions, Right? Like, well, I'm not hating my countrymen in my heart. I'm not uh, bearing a grudge. I'm not uh, taking vengeance. So I must be loving my neighbor. And that, uh, that really was the thought process of uh, the, the scholar in Luke 25. If you, if you turn over there, Luke 10:25. Sorry, you're like, there is no Luke 25, Thomas. Luke 10:25. There's a scholar who comes up to Jesus in Luke 10:25, And... He's seeking to justify himself. He's going to ask a question very similar also to the rich young ruler. Behold, a scholar of the law stood up and was putting him to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And again, Jesus responds similar to how he does with the rich young ruler. Points him to the law. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And then verse 29, But wishing to justify himself, 
He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that prompts Jesus to, to tell a parable, a parable that you're probably very familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as Jesus tells this parable, uh, the, and, and you're familiar with it, right? There's a, there's a, 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 a man who is uh, robbed uh, on uh, the road. He's beaten uh, and left half dead. Uh, and uh, a priest and a Levite pass by him and don't care for him, but a, but a Samaritan stops uh, and uh, tends to him and, and brings him to an inn. Uh, and basically the, the Samaritan then uh, slaps his credit card on the counter of the inn and says to the innkeeper, take care of this man for as long as you need to. Right? This, this, and this is, this is really what love looks like. If you want to know what it looks like to love your neighbor, everybody who's hurting care for them in that way now now the implication of that is not that you hear that parable and you come away with like okay i can do that right but when you understand the full weight of the parable and the standard that jesus is lifting up there what's the conclusion i i'm going to max out my credit card this is going to be really really bad that there's no way that i can love my neighbor as god calls me to love my neighbor that standard is so far above and beyond me that there's no way that I'm able to obey that command and earn favor with God. I will only fail. And see, Jesus is doing something similar to that here in John 13. Because he says, go and love one another. But what's the pattern of love we are to follow? Christ's love. We see this pattern held up for us that we are not able to attain to. Christ is the perfect pattern of love. He is the template that we are to follow. He has shown us what perfect love looks like and how far short we fall. He's shown us how love acts on behalf of others. But as we look at that standard, again, we recognize that there's no way for me to attain to that. No way. D.A. Carson says this, The more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher His standard appears. The higher his standard appears, the more we recognize in our selfishness, our innate self-centeredness, the depth of our own sin. And with a standard like this, no thoughtful believer can ever say on this side of the return of Christ that I am perfectly keeping the basic stipulation of the new covenant. This, this is the, the basis, right? Sum up the whole law. And these two commands, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus takes those and puts them so high that we can't reach them. And we see how far we are going to to fall short. This pattern of Christ's love is intended to, to humble us. But it's also intended to be a source of help to us. Because even though we fall short, even though we will never meet the perfect standard of Christ's love... But we also need to look to Christ's love as our motivation. Even though we're not going to love perfectly, 
we should still love, as 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. But even though I'm going to fall short, I, am, I still have love to give because Christ has set his love and affection upon me. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this helps us in those moments. And if we're honest, we, we all experience those moments. When a, when a close family member or friend sins against you, in that moment, you do not feel like loving them. You don't feel like acting for their benefit or for their good. What do we tend to focus on in that moment that we've been sinned against? All of the other things that in Leviticus 19 that we weren't supposed to do. Like, can I bear a grudge? Can I take vengeance? Can I be angry uh, with my, uh, my family member in my heart? Those are all of the things that we tend towards. But we are commanded to love. And sometimes we say, well, I can't do this. Oh, yes, you can. Do you know why? Because when we love others, we're not pulling from our own resources. And we're not pulling from our own emotions. Love has to be principled. If it's pure emotion, uh, we'll never love as we ought to. We love because he first loved us. This is what we are to see and to comprehend. Love is a passion for others that operates on principles rather than emotions. And those who, who love others purely based upon how they feel emotionally will struggle to love others as we are commanded to here. And those who love others with principled passion will still fall short, but they will love regardless of how the other person is responding and treating them, regardless of how they feel in that moment. Jesus gives this command. He establishes this pattern. And this is a pattern that the world has never had before. We are to love as Jesus has loved. And the disciples understood the depth of that love even to a greater degree than we have. Because they walked with Jesus for three years. After giving this command and and establishing himself as the pattern for loving one another, Jesus adds a, a third component to this command. He'd call this the distinction of love. Verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Think this through. Christ, Christ is going out into the world, or going, departing from the world, and yet everybody is still going to be able to to distinguish who his disciples are. See, when Jesus was walking uh, through uh, the hills of of Galilee uh, in Judea, it was really easy to see who his followers were. Why? Because they were literally following him, right? I was like, oh, so Jesus is walking, and everybody who's behind him, those are the followers of Jesus. How does everybody know who's following Jesus now? By our love for one another. Jesus says that is the distinguishing mark, that everybody else will be able to look and see how you interact. Not again, not with your immediate family members, but with other believers. That is the distinguishing mark. I love what J.C. Ryle says. He says, let us note that our Lord does not name gifts or miracles or intellectual attainments, but love 
the simple grace of love, a grace within reach of the poorest, lowliest believers, as the evidence of discipleship. If we have no love, we have no grace, no regeneration, no true Christianity. Jesus uh, puts this as the distinguishing mark, and it's a mark that every single disciple can reach. We can't say, well, that's unattainable for me. I cannot do it. And we are able to love because he first loved us, and we rely upon him. And even as we've been reading and studying through 1 Corinthians, right? That's, that's why in the Corinthian church, when there was an abuse of, of spiritual gifts, what, what was the solution that the Apostle Paul pointed to? In 1 Corinthians 13, before he, he defines love, he says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, he doesn't say I have nothing. He says I am nothing. The every local church, what we see here, every local church is to be a display window for Christ's supernatural love. The Corinthian church was failing miserably. <laughs> Their witness in, in Corinth, you can imagine, right? When, when there's infighting and backbiting and factions within a church, the, the world looks at that and says, I don't want to get into that, right? Does anybody like walked by a street fight and said, I want to join, right? Can I be involved in this? All too often, that's what churches can be like. But Christ says, no, if the the world should look at believers and say, I know they are following Christ because of the love that they have. All Billheimer puts it this way. The local church, therefore, may be viewed as a spiritual workshop for the development of love. And thus, the, the stresses and strains of a spiritual fellowship offer the ideal situation for the testing and maturing of love. The local congregation is one of the best laboratories in which individual believers may discover their their real spiritual emptiness and begin to grow in love. Think about that. God is telling us we need to grow in love. And you know that, right? Especially if you just in your mind said, well, I did the 1 Corinthians 13 test. I need to grow in love. Uh, And if you want to grow in love, God has placed you in a church where you can, guess what? Grow in love. Because there's going to be people here who are different from you. That may be a shocker to some of you. You're like, I haven't met them yet. You will. Uh, You will. There's going to be people who, who think differently, who are gifted differently. And again, in the Corinthian church, there's a tendency uh, that we, uh, we prize ourselves and our own gifting above the gifting of others. And we look down upon others who are gifted differently than we are. Uh, and so as you interact with people who are different, uh, and if, as you have the opportunity to, to serve one another, to love one another, not based upon your own emotions, but based upon the, the way that Christ has loved you and operating on that principle, you will grow in love. And I've said in the past, a lone ranger is a dead ranger in the Christian faith, but a lone ranger also can't love anybody else, right? And nobody else can can love and care for you. Some have have asked or suggested that that the emphasis that that Jesus puts here upon love uh, within the church, uh, does that mean that I don't have to love the outside world? 
But no, elsewhere in Scripture, what we see is that Jesus has said that we are to love our enemies. Uh, we are to love those in the world. And, and the command here to love uh, one another, again, speaking of brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, th- that command doesn't negate the other commands. But we are to love uh, those outside the church uh, uh, in one particular way. We do that by, by proclaiming the gospel, by serving them, by caring for them, by praying for them. Uh, and we, we love uh, those in the church uh, in a different capacity and into a greater uh, affection, I would say. And in the same way that God loves uh, all people, we talked about yeah, common grace in, in Titus 1. Uh, God bestows blessings upon the entire world. He makes his reign to fall upon the just and the unjust. Uh, but then he has a special, specific, even greater love that he bestows upon his people, upon believers. And in that sense, Christians follow in that same uh, capacity and uh, we are to love those uh, outside of the church but our love for those inside of the church is one of the most persuasive ways uh, that we can reach the world around us uh, again of when when there is chaos and craziness happening in the church uh, that is not as titus speaks of that is not adorning the doctrine of god uh, that is not making uh, god attractive that makes god unattractive that means everybody in the, in the world around us doesn't want any part. But when there is a love within the fellowship, within the body of believers, that, that is a, a sweet-smelling aroma to the world around us. That, that is something that the, that the world looks at and says, I, I want to know a little bit more. And the, the message of the gospel is a stumbling block. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But the love of Christ will get their attention and say, Maybe I need to hear a little bit more. Maybe I need to, to examine things. And I would bet, as if you, if you talk to people here, if you heard individual testimonies of how people came to faith in Christ, I bet that the lives of believers that they encountered played a profound impact upon people coming to faith in Christ here. Amen? Amen. I know it did in my own life. To quote J.C. Ryle again, he says, There is nothing that the world understands and values more than true charity. Another term for love. The very men who cannot comprehend doctrine and know nothing of theology can appreciate charity. It arrests their attention and makes them think. And so we, we have to understand that. And I would ask, have you really fully believed the reality of what Jesus says here, especially in verse 35? Do you believe that the world is going to be able to look at your life and the relationships that you have and that those relationships will uh, be observable and they will be they will show whether or not you are truly following Christ? Do you believe that? Do you you recognize this as the distinguishing mark of the Christian? And even as as you were to take inventory of your own life, right, would would the relationships that you have with others uh, here, uh, I would say first and foremost in your own family and then also in your church family, would those relationships uh, be uh, a source of light and blessing and encouragement and a testimony to Christ to the watching world? Would those be a testimony or would those be a stumbling block? And if, if Jesus says that all will be able to know that we are his disciples through our love for one another, that also means that at some point we have to interact with the all We have to interact with those who are outside of the church. We have to put our uh, Christian relationships on display. 
Part of that means we have to relate to those who are outside of the church. So friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members who do not know Christ. We need to relate with them and engage with them in some capacity. How will they hear unless we proclaim? How will they see our love if they are never invited, if we never spend any time knowing them or being known by them? That needs to be a priority. All of this, all that Jesus lays out here in these five verses, is only the the beginning of the farewell discourse. As Jesus is preparing the, the disciples for his departure, he, he teaches them and, and tells them about these three surprises. His death would be his glory, that his departure would be soon, and that his commandment would be new. But again, why did Jesus focus on, on love at the beginning of this farewell discourse? And why were these the first of his last words to his disciples? This is the most pressing thing. Uh, This is the most pressing time. His final words. And he begins by saying, you need to love. Why does he begin there? Gary Bridges says, Love binds together all virtues of Christian character. And love is not so much a character trait as the inner disposition of the soul that produces them all. And though love may be more a motivational force than an actual display of Christian virtue, it always results in actions on our part. And love inclines us and directs us to be kind, to forgive, to give of ourselves to one another. So we've been reading through uh, Corinthians. Again, Paul says that he is glad to spend and be spent on their behalf. He is happy and rejoices in being able to give and live and sacrifice his own life for the Corinthians. They were talking about him behind his back. He was willing to spend and be spent for those who were backbiting and betraying him. That same apostle also said this in Colossians 3.14. He says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's why Jesus begins with love here in the farewell discourse. The most important thing, the distinguishing mark, the way that everybody else is going to know that you're a follower of Christ is the way that you love. And is that evident in your relationships? Something to ponder this week. Amen? Let's pray.